Hello and welcome to The Stack. This week we speak with Ukrainian photographer Lesha Berezovsky on his new book, We Stay. And, also from Ukraine, we speak with the executive editor of Kritika, the country's international review of books and ideas. And finally, a fascinating title about desserts. It's called Cake Scene. Enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack, 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. To start the show, I had the pleasure to speak with Ukrainian photographer and also Monaco contributor Lesha Berezovsky. His new book, We Stay, looks at his country, post the full-scale Russian invasion. He looks at what happens to people when their fate is suddenly determined by world politics. Here is Lesha with more. This book is based on the columns, which I'm writing since the very first day of full-scale invasion for the Swiss magazine Republic. It actually was supposed to be the pre-war column. I did some project about a small city in Donbass next to the front line before the full-scale invasion in January. And when the things started becoming more intense in February. The magazine came back to me with this idea of pre-possible war column. They wanted me to capture this atmosphere in Kyiv to like take pictures of my friends like who are planning to leave or were planning to stay. And we scheduled a call with the magazine for the February 25th to discuss the column. Yeah, and... Suddenly, uh, the day before everything started, I woke up from the sound of explosions and, you know, like everything stopped, all the previous life stopped. And like a few hours later, I got an email from the magazine with all the words of support and saying that, of course, I can say no and we can cancel the column. And I was thinking about it. And for me, it was... Back then, I felt like it could be at least something, you know, to distract from this constant scrolling and use, like looking, like hearing explosions. Like we literally spent, we were spending 24 hours a day in a hallway or in a shelter first few days. And I agreed to try to do this column. And it was my very first writing experience. And we agreed that it would be like photo column, but with kind of long captions for the photos and somehow I started writing more and more because first few months of the invasion it was really hard in Kyiv and everywhere in Ukraine to take pictures but I started writing more and explaining like my feelings and somehow I started taking more pictures and the column really had a big uh, response you know and at some point, maybe in in the end of last spring or in summer, we felt that it could be a really nice idea to give some physical form to this column afterwards. I got the permission to travel outside of Ukraine for a few weeks. 
and we met with the publisher and with the magazine and we worked on the concept of the book and we agreed to make it for the first year of the full-scale invasion. So if you look through the book, the first picture is my wife sleeping on 24th of February, not knowing yet that the war started because I didn't wake her up back then yet. And then you can find our like portraits of each other in the first morning on the full-scale invasion. And in the end of the book, there are our portraits again at our kitchen but on 24th february this year so it's covering the first year year of full-scale invasion and also there's some you know of course the pictures they can be quite intimate as well uh, it's not mm -hmm. just kind of you know the city being destroyed or anything but there are some moving images there's one for example where there's a statue called covered I didn't quite understand the reason why it was covered, maybe to protect against bombs, but, but it's quite interesting. Another one that caught my eye, uh, where there's a seagull nest as well. So really interesting observations across the city. Tell us a bit more about which kind of photography you wanted to include in this book. Was that your perception to do more of an intimate look of this kind of small observations around the city? Yes, I think so. It's because originally I'm not a like reportage, you know, a journalist, mm. photojournalist, photographer, and I try to document life through my personal perspective. I try to observe like, I don't know, smaller details, you know, and try to like explain the world to the audience through like smaller personal experiences of my friends, you know, because I think it works better. And I got a response from the readers that my pictures, like more intimate pictures, you know, more atmospheric in a way, they worked better for the audience. Because at some point, people in Europe started being like tired, you know, like, of looking at like some reportages, you know, like with bombed, like, cities and dead bodies and so on so they muted you know all the news from ukraine but with these pictures sometimes i felt it was working much better and still was attracting this you know attention to what's going on in ukraine and i was trying to keep this balance you know because sometimes i felt like especially last summer i felt when it became relatively calm in kiev like for a few months in summer, I felt that I can't just, you know, like show peaceful life in Kyiv to like the foreign audience because they might think that the war is over, you know, like it was in 2014 when everyone forgot about the war because it was happening somewhere there, you know, like in Donbass. And I was afraid that the, now it could be the same, you know, people will see in some pictures of peaceful streets of Kiev, you know, people going to coffee. So I tried to keep this balance. I was always traveling somewhere to the front line, like helping like military. Also for myself, you know, to remind myself about what's going on, because I'm afraid myself that I can distract too much from the war here in Kiev, for example. But... Yeah, that's why I was trying to keep this balance between like mm. directly war-related pictures and 
this more intimate. I think you've reached that balance very well, I have to say, after looking at the book. And Losh, I want to ask you more in general, perhaps, the importance of your job as a photographer in very difficult periods like Ukraine has been living in the last years. I wonder if you can tell us a bit more because, you know, you mentioned that you're not quite a reportage type of photographer, but I guess that had to change a little bit almost organically, right? Yes, you're right. And actually, I was just saying before that last summer when I thought about this, like in a, being in a peaceful Kiev for a few months, I thought a lot about my work as well, you know, back then I felt I had this like few months of doubts, you know, when uh, my friends were joining like military or they were joining some like medical, you know, battalions like to evacuate. And I was asking myself, like, am I useful enough, you know, in such a difficult times? Am I doing enough with my photography? And I was also thinking about joining army, but somehow last autumn I got this actually also after like the big project for Monocle and a few more projects, I felt this feedback, you know, about my work and I realized that it also has a big impact. And when I traveled to the front line, when I met with some military guys, like I bought a car, one car for militaries this year for the money from my print sale. When I delivered it to Donbass region and I met with militaries and they were really grateful and they were saying that it's very important what I'm doing and what other like artists, you know, journalists, photographers, volunteers doing, because not everyone from the front line have the skills and contacts to do this, to spread this information to the world, to this like big audience. So somehow also after the book release, it was very emotional and very tough. Thank you very much, Lash. And if you want to buy a copy of the book, go to sturmandrang.net, S-T-U-R-M-A-N. N-D-D-R-A-N-G dot net. And we are staying in Ukraine here for the stack. Monocle's contributor Yulia Lasica spoke to Yulia Bentia, executive editor of Kritika magazine, Ukraine's international review of books and ideas. Yulia commented on the magazine's role in modern-day Ukraine, the dialogue it has aimed to open up between Ukraine and the rest of the world since its founding in 1997, and how Russia's invasion has changed the relationship between writers, editors and words themselves. Kritika tries to establish this Western discourse in Ukrainian humanities, and it started from the first years of Kritika. And of course, it is not just a magazine that presents news. We tried to publish articles that could be read in 10 years and still be vital for a reader. 
Kritika started a lot of topics that now became fashion, but at that time it was totally new about feminism, about some political issues, and it was tough issues about closing some exhibition, about culture, cultural policy, a lot of things. And for sure, they have already changed a bit, but of course, post-colonial. It was maybe the main thing, and when Kritika was established, it appeared in this post-Soviet environment, journalist environment, and it changed the way of writing, a way of talking also, not only topics, but this mode of writing. I think the main thing that Ukraine has understood that it's vital to explain itself to the world, that world couldn't understand Ukraine, so we should put efforts in this direction too. It's our job. All of us uh, now discuss this uh, first days afterwards, this full-scale war started. We were all shocking panic, we tried to find our documents, so it was just, uh, I remember my feeling like something heavy just fallen me when I had that Russian stance already in Ukraine. But as an editor, of course, I felt that I should do something. It's just vital to edit, to ask somebody to write. And Austrian colleagues from uh, Eurozine write to me uh, in first day maybe and ask if we were going to submit some kind of statement from Kritika. And this was first step that it was uh, really simple words, I think. So George Grabovich, our editor-in-chief, he wrote this short, really short article and it was uh, things that we have already maybe written many times, but at that time it was really vital. And this statement from Kritika went all around the world. It was translated in different languages. And then this uh, writing, I remember that feeling that it returned me some kind of normality in that time. It was just maybe first day, just half an hour or an hour during the day in the middle of this more down-to-earth stuff that should have been done at that time. And also in that sense that we should find these right words to discuss this war between us, between different people who are abroad and who are now in Ukraine, who are on the front line and who are in the western part of Ukraine. And it is maybe even tougher to find this right way of discussion between different groups of our society, not just to keep our country together and to develop proper strategies together. And now a very fun title here on the stack. Cake Zine is a hedonistic exploration of history, pop culture, literature and art through dessert. 
an independent zine conjured up by writer and editor Aliza Abarbanel and writer-baker Tanya Bush. The third issue, Humble Pie, features broad interpretations of humiliation and piping hot servings of contrition, packed full of recipes, essays, illustrations, poems, fiction and photographs. Monaco's Emily Wade sat down with the creators to get an insight into the inner workings of the magazine. Eliza and I met about, I guess, like two years ago, and we were working on a mutual aid bake sale together in Brooklyn, and we were packing hundreds of boxes. And I pitched her on this idea that I had sort of been thinking about, about a sort of interdisciplinary food magazine. And Eliza has a background in the food media space. She was an editor at Bon Appetit, and I'm a baker and a writer. I sort of felt that there wasn't really like a publication that was doing things in a sort of interdisciplinary way and that all of the brands that I was reading and familiar with were blending together in theme and scope. And so I thought that Cake sort of was having this moment, you know, it was like the pandemic and everyone was spending a lot of time on their phones ogling beautiful desserts. And I thought it would be sort of an interesting theme and way of sort of exploring the culture and history and art behind desserts more generally. So I said, what do you think about starting a little indie zine? And she was into it. Yeah, I said yes. I thought that we were going to be printing the pages ourselves at a local print shop, but that obviously is not what happened. <laughs> I think that we were both really excited by cake as a topic because it's completely not essential to survival and at the same time, deeply essential to so many people and so many cultures around the world. It's just a really fun topic to get to dig into. And we had a lot of fun working with our community in New York and then later with all of the contributors that pitch us from around the world. And we kind of just kept pulling the cake thread and coming up with these niche themes that we blow out in scope and format and tone in, in every issue. And we've just grown a lot along the way. Would you say you kind of initially had an idea about what cake would be about and then it's kind of evolved from there? Or would you say you kind of like just rolled with it and kind of worked? I mean, you're on issue three now, so you probably have quite a good idea about what you kind of maybe want to get across in the next issue, so to speak. Yeah, I have a very distinct memory of being in a cab with Tanya going over the Williamsburg Bridge with hundreds of kind of pastry boxes <laughs> around us. And she was telling me about all of these strange histories of cake that I had never heard about before, specifically cake as a vehicle for poisonings around, I think, the 19th century. Wow. And we thought that kind of this dark side of cake was a really fun topic to dig into because it's not what people expect when they think of a dessert. So that's how we came up with our second theme, which was Wicked Cake. And then mm. we actually decided to lead with Sexy Cake because we thought that Wicked Cake would be good for a fall Halloween issue. And our first issue was launching in the spring. It was right after people were starting to get vaccinated and sex obviously sells. So we kind of thought mm. that Sexy Cake would be a good topic to kind of introduce the magazine and start off on. So we started with those two themes and then from there, we've kind of set up a pattern where we do twin issues in a year. Tanya and I both are twins, actually, not to each other, but we both have twin sisters. And mm -hmm. I think that the topic of twin issues was kind of fun for us. So Tanya, I don't know if you want to speak to the twins that we're on for this year. 
Yeah. So we released Humble Pie, which was our sort of first foray into the pastry case beyond cake in July slash August. And then right now we're currently working on our fourth issue, which is Tough Cookie. So um, they're sort of like pithy idioms, sort of like nice narrowing devices for a theme. We're super excited to sort of move beyond cake. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds great. And I think also like a lot of people would just expect, you know, a cake zine. They're like, oh, some, you know, some nice recipes that we can follow. But I think the fact that you guys have kind of gone down a completely different route is is exactly what you kind of want to see from an indie zine as well. It's just something a bit different, something kind of tongue in cheek almost. Did you have an idea to keep it in print kind of going throughout or did you start off with a digital platform or are you just kind of did you just go and kind of head first into the the publishing world yeah I mean I think in a certain way we're romantics at heart you know we very much conceived of this as like a physical object we still actually don't have we have a newsletter but we don't publish most of the content that we we have in the print issue in any form or digital iteration and you know I think that's because For one, we don't really have like the resources right now to make a comparable version that feels as special and thoughtful and careful as the print magazine itself. But also because like, you know, this object we put so much and our designer Noah Emmerich put so much like care and attention into. And we think that like the experience of like physically holding and going through the magazine and cooking with it in the kitchen is something that we want all of the cake scene community to sort of engage with. And I think um, just going off of that to me it's almost a manifestation of these strange niche themes that we've come up with for ourselves i think you're right that with an indie mag it's nice to be strange and you know no one really needs a magazine about historical and contemporary desserts through a literary lens as a necessity it's more of a a pleasure object in the way that a lot of magazines i think are meant to be and i think having it be a physical thing that you can sit down and immerse yourself in speaks to the physical nature of baking and dessert and all of the things that the magazine is talking about. And also it's just pretty to have out on your table. Yeah, absolutely. I think going along with your kind of indulgent themes, kind of hedonistic themes, um, it makes so much sense for it to be a physical thing that kind of feels quite indulgent it's it's different you can't you know looking on a screen or looking on a laptop you know we're doing that all day every day and it just doesn't feel the same and having a physical copy is um definitely kind of gets across your content in in the best way possible I also love the fact that you kind of weave kind of cultural and historical references as as you mentioned throughout and especially with humble pie it's it's quite quite funny seeing some kind of like british tv references in there as well with pie as a metaphor for rejection in love island was that planned or was that kind of something that you had pitched into you and then you kind of went from there that was intentional i think we really wanted a reality tv moment and tanya wanted a real housewives moment if anyone saw our pitch call for Humble Pie, it leads with a quote from Real Housewives, which I don't watch actually. Tanya, which who who's quoting in the it's, pitch it's guide? Lisa, it's icon Lisa Barlow, who is on the Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. And she says, I've eaten so much humble pie, it's a wonder that I still fit into this dress. Love it. We had that styled, like, you know, academic quoting at the very top of our pitch guide. I think just to signal to 
readers and to people that we wanted to pitch us that we don't take the themes very seriously. We really kind of delight in subversions and having a uh, piece that people would never expect in the theme or in that kind of food publication. And I think in our process of finding the right reality TV story, we somehow got connected with Olivia Crandall, who wrote the Love Island piece, who is an LA-based writer who had done a Love Island recap series for New York Magazine before. So she kind of was like our Love Island scholar that we approached knowing that pie and the phrase pied off appeared on the show. So we kind of approached her and said, we want to do this humble pie issue. Is there anything related to Love Island that you would want to write about for us? And she came back with this really great kind of concept about pieing as a metaphor for rejection, like both with the pieing in the face game and also mm. kind of the slang that's used on the show. That was a really fun piece to edit and work on because I do think that reality TV is a very humbling experience in general. So it was a, a doubly nice fit, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It kind of actually works perfectly. <laughs> Perfect for a humble pie issue. And in terms of kind of brainstorming, when you think of kind of a particular theme that you want to run with for kind of coming issues, do you guys get together and think up that type of thing? Or does it come quite kind of quickly to you and then you just run with it and hope for the best? What's the process like? Yeah, so I mean, originally we, for our first issue, we didn't actually open up to pitches. So we sort of approached people in our own community. Um, we were lucky enough to know a bunch of like writers and food makers just through our other jobs and asked if they had anything that they would want to explore in the context of hedonism and like cake and sort of sexiness more generally. And then for Wicked Cake and then the succeeding issues, we've opened up to pitches and you know, we write a pitch guide with sort of like general sort of guidelines for the types of theme and content that we're interested in. But again, as Eliza said, we're really interested in different sort of, you know, formats that don't necessarily conventionally appear in food publications, whether it be like a listicle or a taxonomy or, you know, fiction or poetry. And then from there, we like we call down. So we got like, I think, 500 pitches for mm -hmm. our last issue. And, you know, we'll call down a list to around like 40 or 50. And then we sort of think about the gaps and the kinds of things that we want to be hitting on. So the Love Island piece was like a really amazing pop cultural moment for us. Mm -hmm. And that was something that we'd really been pitched on. And so we sort of do the same work in the current issue where with Tough Cookie, you know, we had hundreds and hundreds of amazing pitches. And then there are a couple like pet pieces that we'll be interested in. Like Eliza had this amazing idea for a piece on the Cookie Monster, which is like a costumed figure in Times Square. And so we well, Order. He's yeah, on are. he's on Sesame Street. He's a puppet, right? Yeah, <laughs> very well, very well I. known. <laughs> very well yeah, known. The but cookie also, monster. but also yeah, appears in Times Square. <laughs> people yeah. will dress up as Cookie Monster to take pictures with tourists. So we wanted yeah. to do an interview with someone that dresses up as Cookie Monster in Times Square because to us that's a very tough cookie job. So yeah. that was something that we solicited and had someone go out and and track him down and you will hear all about what it's like to dress up as Cookie Monster in the next issue. I love that. I'll definitely be reading that. Uh, in terms of kind of distributing, I know that distribution, I know that it can be very tricky in terms of shipping and finding places that will take the mag. How was that process as well? Did you kind of start off in the US and then you've kind of broadened or how is it kind of sold online only or how, how is the process there? 
Yeah, we sell online. We started with domestic stockists and distribution, mostly just places that we would go to in New York or in other cities we've been to that we liked and we wanted to carry the magazine. And, you know, I think when you have something that you're carrying around with you and walking into places and showing it to people, we were lucky that some folks were interested and wanted to give it a chance. And then we've kind of grown our stockist and distribution over time. We have someone named Amber Lee, who helps us with that in the US, who's really great. And then starting with Humble Pie, we partnered with Antenna for distribution in the Mm -hmm. EU and UK. So we've had some more kind of growth in that part of the world over the past couple months. And so in terms of where our listeners can find Cakezine in the UK, are there kind of particular stockists that we can watch out for? Yeah, so we're at Mag Culture. Um, I mean, I think we're actually all over the UK now. You can find all of the list of our stockists on cakezine.com. But in Bath, we're in Magalaria. In Glasgow, we're at Categorias Books and Print Culture. In Leeds, we're at Colors May Vary. In London, we're at Art Words Bookshop, Magma, News and Coffee, Shriji News Agents. So we're sort of all over. Um, you know, working with Antenna has been really amazing because we're just able to reach these kinds of stockists that we never really would be able to find on our own. Thank you all, and the latest issue of Cake Scene is out now. And that's it for this week's show. My thanks to our editor, Jack Jewers. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fbnmonaco.com. And remember, we're back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. Meanwhile, do subscribe to The Stack on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Before we go, a little song for you. Madonna with American Pie. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. We started singing Bye, bye, Miss American Pie Drove my Chevy to the levee But the levee was dry And good old boys were drinking whiskey and rye Singing this a new day that I die This a new day